Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together through sharing stories. It doesn't matter if you're a mechanic, a rider, a collector. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or an expert, whether you like to ride at the skate park or on the snow trails. This place is a big tent where everyone is welcome. We have listeners in all 50 states and over 50 countries, and many of our stories come from around the world as well. This time, we find out what happens to a frame maker who admits to not being perfect. Then we head out to the West Coast with a band that gigs using bicycles and skateboards. There's a live report from a snow bike in a field and a few other surprises. I know there's a lot of podcasts to listen to and more every day, so I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. There's an expression that I say to my students in class that only a few of them get, which is to never, ever trust anyone who speaks in absolutes. Yeah, it takes a second. The reason is, is that when people say that everything they do is to a certain standard, that's not human. That's that's not what makes us human. And yet, in a competitive world, you don't want to lay all your weaknesses out for the world to use against you. When I would fix a bike, perfect is the enemy of good sometimes, and you just need to decide what you're going to let go a little bit so that the project can actually be done. Because as we all know, a project could just keep going forever. Eventually, you gotta turn it loose. Famous painters, notorious for this, is just when do they stop with the touch-ups? When do they finally let it go and move on to the next piece? But when you combine that artistic temperament with the sporting world, there's this clash where in the sporting world, people are like, yes, we knew we were going to win it. We knew there was never any doubt. There's this type of posturing that happens and it carries over into the people who make the things for the sports. So this crossover sets some unrealistic expectations of people and it does make reputations, but sometimes the bragging becomes mixed in with the reputation. Looking over the literature from some cycling companies and frame builders, you would think that they've never ever made a mistake. In a way that's supposed to inspire confidence, but for a lot of us it's a warning sign that seems artificial. So along with that warning to my students of never trusting anyone who speaks in absolutes, I'm wary of any manufacturer who claims to be perfect all the time. Because there's a wisdom and reflection, and sometimes the best products come after the products before them have failed. So it was so refreshing to hear an award-winning frame builder humbly admit to something that could have been better on one of his builds. And I wasn't the only one who thought so. Rather than going down in some people's estimation for a perceived flaw, this guy got accolades for being realistic and admitting that he's still learning, as we all are. So here's a story about a skilled artisan leveling up and getting even better by admitting to not being perfect.
Hey, my name is Tom from Porter Cycles. I operate out of Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm happy to be here to talk about bikes with you guys. So I saw a post that you did the other day, and you showed uh, your bicycle frame had broke. And as a frame builder, somebody who professionally makes bicycle frames, it almost seems counterintuitive, but you had leveled up as soon as I saw that post and the, you explained everything that happened and the thought process. And I was like, wow, I have so much respect for this guy showing me what went wrong with his frame. And did you get that reaction from other people? I did. You know, the reality behind it is like it had happened quite a while a while ago on my trip, the cross country trip I just took, and so I'd been sort of like holding onto it in my back pocket, waiting till a time where I could actually show what I was going to do about it. So it had sort of been like you know hanging over me for a while, and it it was like actually with me on the trip. You know what I mean? As sort of like a point of shame, I guess. And so when I got to do the post the other day, and I showed off not only what had happened, and then you know what I was going to do about it, and how I actually like effectively like made the repair, I also at the same time time I think was like wanting to relieve myself of the burden of like hey there's something that didn't go right with the way I designed the bike and it ended up becoming a problem because of the conditions I was riding in and um but here's what we're going to do about it and um I was honestly like I was pretty overwhelmed by the kind of verbiage people were giving me in terms of just loads of respect for having been honest about it. And so like honesty, integrity, openness, transparency, like all these words came up in the comment section and it had a, a huge reaction actually. And um, I was pretty excited because like the, the lead photo was like a broken bike, you know, and a messed up paint job and not just the initial break. It's like what it looked like after quite a while of deteriorating. So yeah, I was pretty overwhelmed and I was honestly like really heartened by the kind of reaction I got. It was cool. So you kind of felt guilty that here you are a bike maker and you're selling bikes to people and your your reputation is built on your quality, which is amazing. And then you've got this dirty little secret and you feel like <laughs> it's going to be kryptonite. And then you share it, and then all of a sudden, people, instead of thinking, oh, shame on you, they're like going, all right, you just leveled up, man. You just, you, you had a pocket full of kryptonite, and you came out like Superman. So it was, totally. it was kind of amazing. So what happened with this bike? Because it was a beautiful frame. Tell us about the frame. What was the material? What was the purpose of the bike? And then what happened to it along the way? Yeah, for sure. So effectively, it's a touring bike that I made. The specs are basically like a fillet braised steel frame that had, it didn't really have any kind of bilaminates or anything. It was a pretty strict fillet braised steel frame, tapered head tube, tapered steerer, custom biplane fork, custom stem, custom racks. I made titanium handlebars and a seat post for it. And to the extent where I actually even had a friend of mine take bags that I had designed and, and made the bags for me. And this was all an idea that developed about getting to take a bike ride home from Mab, which this year was in Sacramento, California. So for people who don't know, when you hear us talk about NABS, that stands for the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. It's cool. You should go check it out. And sort of the extended story behind it was that I had been working with Rudy from Black Magic Paint out of Portland, Oregon, and we just sort of decided we would collaborate on a project and that they were willing to show one of my bikes at NABS. 
So when I was like, well, I've had this touring bike idea in mind that I've really wanted to do. You know, I would love it if you guys want to paint it. I would certainly love it if you guys want to show it. And so the, the idea sort of germinated from like just the design that I had been working on. There was a mixture of two frames that I had already built that I liked in their own right for two different reasons, but wanted to bring them together into like a kind of more comprehensive one by 11 SRAM kit uh, with medium sized tires, 700 millimeter rims with 42 millimeter tires, sort of a gravel bike, but not exactly. And this would be my proposition for a potential touring bike. So then when I was thinking about, it, oh, well, it's going to be a NAB at Sacramento. I was like, wouldn't that be fun to ride at home? So it sort of turned into this six month sort of stone that just sort of kept on as it was like kind of descending the hill of like getting made and like, you know, the show was coming around. It's like this whole idea came around and it kept gaining force and, and mass as it was happening. I had to get this frame built and this, you know, mind you, at this point, like, NABS is rapidly approaching. I was preparing another bike, two two other bikes, one for a client here on the East Coast and one for a client is in Detroit, one of which was going to get shown at NABS in my booth. And so I had to finish this bike in time to send it off to Portland, Oregon to get painted so that Rudy and his team had enough time with it so that, you know, they could present their work in, in like, a show-worthy situation without me rushing them. And so I was sort of, like, rushing to get this thing done. Um and so effectively, to come back around to like what happened with it, I had decided to try to make as light and as strong a bike as I possibly could. And one of the choices involved in that was to use a 25.4 millimeter seat post in a tube that is designed to receive a 27.2, which is like a, you know, typical standard for road and stuff like that. So I made a shim that was going to transition from the 27.2 inside diameter to the 25.4 seat post and unfortunately what I did was I took a piece of material that was like decimal points lower than what it should have been in terms of the actual size so when I went to go after NABS when I was assembling it and my friend Addison's Bicycle Repairium in Sacramento you know I kind of was like all right well this is maybe not as perfect a fit as it should have been but it'll probably be fine you know and I had constructed the seat tube in the bike without any kind of extra reinforcement. I had just let it be like the thin wall tube that anybody would use, but they would usually put a lug or like a hardier sleeve around the top point where the clamp happens. And effectively, I'd put the bike together and then set off on what had turned out to be a 4,000-mile cross-country bike ride that took me the next two months to actually unfold. So skip forward to like 2,500 miles into the tour, or whatever it was, like, I'm in super wet conditions. I'm on a rail trail, the Elroy Sparta bike trail, and I end up hydroplaning on mud, and the bike kind of, like, diagonally slid out from underneath me, and I just kind of crashed into the spot where I had been riding. And me and my cargo, which is about 50 pounds worth of stuff, all just, like, hit the ground hard while I was still clipped into my pedals, so the whole bike sort of fish-tailed, like, around my body on the ground. And I blew out the side of the seat tube where it had been under pressure from sort of having too small of a seat shim in there anyway. And so long story short, I, I split out the tube, blew out the side, and later on realized what had happened because my frame bag sort of covered up the area and I didn't really notice until later on. And then I hear a creaking and I realized that I have now not only damaged the bike that I made for myself, but I've also damaged the incredibly beautiful and expensive paint job that Black Magic did. So that was a tough one, and I just was like, well, I'm still 
something like 1,300 miles from home. Like, I'm not going to stop now. So I just sort of, like, tightened down the bolt, recognized that it was probably going to get slightly more damaged as I went, and just went about my trip. I will say that leading up to getting to Michigan, where it happened, there was already a significant amount of extremely altered terrain. Like, I did the California coastline from Sacramento to Los Angeles. I went down all manner, up and down all manner of, like, mountains, through the desert, washboard roads, like, ATV trails that I shouldn't have been on, you know, like, rocky major descending roads. Like, I had been through a torturous regime leading up to the point where this all happened and nothing at all else had happened to the bike. So there is that. It's not like it was just like taking a casual ride and the thing blew out. You know, it had already been through quite a bit of hell. If you had been back in your shop instead of in Sacramento, California, would you have gone out on a tour towards Sacramento or would you have changed it before you left? If I had been in my shop or if I had had the wherewithal, I would have just put in a bigger shim. Like I had made a nice one and like carved it to the same contour as the top of the seat post that I made. So it was like an elegant solution to what would normally not be quite so elegantly done, which didn't matter. You know what I mean? It wasn't even shown with the seat in it for nabs. It like, it didn't make a difference. But if I had been at home, I'm, I'm sure I would have just like either bought a shim that was appropriately made for doing that job or I would have made one and not had the same problem happen. So just a quick heads up, this guy is a master frame builder, and while he's talking, he's going to get a little detailed with some of the specifications. For some of my listeners, that's not going to be a big deal, because they know a lot about bikes. And for others of you, it might be a little bit over your heads, but have faith, listeners, that he's going to come around and explain it in many different levels, so you will know by the end of the story everything that went on. If a little part here or there gets too technical for you, remember what T.S. Eliot said. If you aren't sometimes getting in over your head, how do you know how tall you actually are? I bet you might surprise yourself and how much you know about some of these things that he's talking about. But even if some of the technical stuff does go over your head, there's a story there that's very relatable about how this artisan is making decisions and questioning things about himself and his bikes. So what I decided to do, like I, I was saying, I, I wanted to make a, a light and really sturdy touring bike. So. I chose the Zona tubing kit that Columbus produces, which has an oversized pear-shaped down tube. I used an oversized top tube, but I, all of the tubing has a very thin wall. So I think that Zona set is actually like a 757 or something like that, which basically just means that where it's butted at both ends, it's 0.7 millimeters. And in the center, where it thins out the most, it's 0.5 millimeters. So it's a very light tube set, but it's a sort of like beefier scale. I had picked Paragon, one of Paragon Machine Works tapered head tubes. So there's sort of a beefiness to the head tube. I built it with a T47 bottom bracket shell, which means it's a two inch diameter. So that meant that the bottom bracket shell, the down tube and the head tube are all two inches wide. So they just saddled up really nicely in terms of like the overall dimensions. The blades of the forks, like I made a custom biplane crown. So it was nice and sturdy, but pretty elegant. And it's got you know, a reasonable amount of offset on the fork blades so that I could accommodate the weighted front end that I was going to have in terms of cargo load. I did do quick release dropouts front and back, which maybe I should have done through axle to be more like up to par with like current standards, but I just sort of went with stuff that I knew. The 
top tube has a slight descending line to it that would make it a little bit easier for me to run a slightly taller head tube size than I would normally. And then I would have a little bit more room to stand over when I was off of the seat. Really beefy chain stays, Columbus chain stays, and pretty thin seat stays. Again, like trying to be mindful of where I was putting the weight, like just giving as much added size where I felt like it needed the most reinforcement while keeping everything overall really light. What, what was going through your head that was like the inspiration for this particular? Um, no, this one, I was just trying to come up with a purpose-filled machine. I think structurally speaking, I was more thinking about the two bikes that I was sort of hybridizing from bikes that I built before and taking what I liked from each one of them and trying to mix it together in a really smart way. Really, the whole concept was just around dynamic capacity for the rider, comfort on a long-term trip, and the capacity to carry a large amount of weight without having the whole bike be a tank because I wanted to do a lot of all-terrain and like off-road riding with it. So really, it was all about, I mean, there are aesthetics involved in the whole thing, but it was really, it's not like fabricated lugs. I wasn't putting in my usual desire to like embellish a bunch of connective tissue of the bike. I really just wanted to keep it streamlined, more modern, and I wanted to use a bunch of modern standards, including the tapered head tube and sear features like a front generator hub that would power an internal lighting system for the front and the rear, all internal cable routing so that there would be as little mess as possible on the outside of the frame or like places for like dirt and grime to collect. And my artisan kind of side came out, I think, more in the fork than anything. But I was just trying to come up with something really sleek and like continuity to it. I did include a few features like a spoke holder on the rear stay. And I think really when it boiled down to it, it was more like the rack system where I put in a lot more curvaceous, fun lines and stuff like that. The racks are one of those places that I feel like I get to really flex making something more sculptural. In this case, I was hoping as much as anything to give as much artistic leeway to Rudy and his team at Black Magic. And so my idea was effectively just I wanted a black bike that looked like it had run into a bubble of pink and was had a pink fade exploding from the head tube out. And I had thought about some kind of a crossfade of either like the moon cycles or like a honeycomb or some kind of a graphic fade rather than it just being sort of like a spider fade. So they ended up coming up with a concept and we were also sort of basing it on what I could get for nipple colors because there's three different spoke lengths on the two wheels. And the front, I put pink nipples on the front wheel and then purple and black in the back. And that was the same color tones that I wanted to use for the frame. And so that would mean that if one of the spokes broke, then the ones that are laid up on the chain stay are color coded so that if you were on the road, you would know which spoke was intended to replace the one that might have broken. The color scheme was sort of incorporated into everything down to that detail. And so what they did was they did a magenta candy coat fade across a graphic 3D honeycomb that they sub-painted underneath the translucent magenta and then faded the tips of the forks and the rear section of the bike into black and then used the purple as detailing around Porter cycles, the down tube decals, they did in what they call burrito wrappers, kind of like a wrinkled silver with purple around that. And they did their emblem and my handmade in Brooklyn emblem in the, the purple. So the, the magenta is sort of exploding from the front. The rest of the bike is in black. And then there's a bunch of details and that's sort of like really dope metallic purple. 
And the way that that all works against the velocity aileron rims, which I did silver. So instead of doing an all black kit, which is much more of like the modern look, I was trying to keep certain elements classic, like a silver hub, silver light, silver rim, gum wall tires. The stem was also painted and the titanium handlebars and seat posts were going to be a secondary system on top. And then the whole rack system is polished stainless steel. So it's sort of like a layering game of different materials that kind of combine given which system you're looking at on the bike. I thought it was pretty thoughtful and uh, I wanted it to look sort of like refined and more like modern and racy, but like also not super hard cut stencil lines everywhere and like kind of like the, the racer look necessarily, but something a little bit more flashy. So for the first 2,500 miles, did it live up to your expectations? How did it feel? Yeah, right off the bat, I was kind of amazed, honestly. Like, for sure, when I started, I had too much cargo, and it took me a bunch of post office trips to just kind of, like, throw stuff in boxes that I figured that I wasn't going to need and sent them forward. So I eventually lightened the load quite a bit pretty early on. And California, the coastline is effectively, like, a raging roller coaster of just like climbs and descents with almost no middle ground so the whole first 700 miles of the trip was me going from the very bottom of my climbing gears to the very top and just over and over and over again for like days on end so it was a really quick lesson in the dynamics of how the one by 11 setup was going to work i eventually by the time i hit southern california decided to lower my chain ring size on the front to make it a little bit easier to manage the weight going uphills while at the same time I was dropping my base weight by like sending stuff home to myself. Okay, <laughs> so I left Sacramento. The very first day I got pounded on for like the entire day. I did a 70 mile ride and about 60 of it was under pouring rain. I was soaked. I got a flat tire my first time out. Um, I missed the ferry that I was trying to catch in, um, what's it called? Vallejo. So I was trying to get from Sacramento to Vallejo to take a ferry to San Francisco and just had the most hellish day starting right off the bat. So not only did I have to like basically do my first major shakeout ride under those conditions, but I also was like learning how to navigate for the first time and trying to use two different GPS systems to see which one I liked better. And like, it, it was just bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it was really a poor way to start the whole thing off. My knee locked up. It was like you know the wind was really intense, so like I really just like just did damage to my left knee like right off the get. And so it was a, it was a tough start. And I spent a week in San Francisco and rode and like went to go visit Paragon Machine Works and Mark over there. Went to visit friends in Oakland, biked up. I took a ferry to Marin County and biked around uh, Mount Tamalpais, which was amazing, and like rode a bunch around San Francisco. So before I embarked from San Francisco to continue the trip, I ended up doing like four or five days of like local touring to just like try to get my knee back underneath me, feel out the bike, and to continue working on like lessening the load you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was tough right off the bat, but like just within the space of the California coastline, I learned a ton about how the bike would perform, how the, my uh, gear was working out, my rain gear, everything. So I continued to check in on as I was on the trip, but it was, it was a pretty intense start going through California. What's the pressure going to NABS to have everything perfect? Yeah, so, so for sure, like if you're, if you're going to go to an international platform like NABS, 
and show off the work that you do in your little corner of the world on that kind of stage, it comes with a massive amount of self-judgment, which I live in all the time anyway. But when it's amplified by the, the nature of showing in front of people that you consider heroes, people that have been in the industry for like decades, um, just your average person showing up who's just a bike community, like a cyclist and a community member, you're under the gun from a whole lot of different angles, you know? And like, and I think the worst of it really is the self-judgment more so than what anybody else would say to me, which has probably always been true. But it does mean that you want to put your best foot forward. You want to put something that you think is innovative that people will pay attention to. You want to put forward work that you think is thoughtful and like, something you can spend time talking about because you're going to spend three days in a row having to <laughs> discussing the thing that's in front of you. And so for me, I was, I was presenting Winged Victory, which is sort of like a runaway hit in terms of all of the feedback I got from when I was producing it up to the point where now it's completed and it's sort of like, I think, being really well respected. And another bike that I was going to show in the raw so that people had a little bit more of an ability to see my work unfinished as well as the benefit of getting to show a bike with black magic paint. And so, yeah, I would say that going to a situation like that, you if you don't have the confidence going into it, you better have it by the time it starts, you know. People are going to ask you every question that you can think of and uh, others that you can't. People from the industry are going to come up and hopefully take a look at your work and have something to say about it. And I'm really lucky to have gotten a pretty amazing reaction from most of the people that I spoke to. I won an award this year, which was, a really big deal, best new builder. And that was for the work that I did on Winged Victory. And it was extra weird for me because I felt like in a room of bikes that are made for 2020 to 2025, like I was showing up with like 1936, you know, and people were just like mind blown over it, you know. But I feel like I won an award for like a bike that came from a century before the rest of the stuff that I was in the room with. And maybe that added to the ability to differentiate and to catch the attention of the, the judges and everything. But I was definitely taken by surprise, 100%. How long have you been doing this? Well, the first bike I ever made that wasn't a cargo trailer or like a weird bike or whatever was in 2010. And at the time, I built a one-purpose, one-use jig, basically. It was only good for the bike that I was making it for. And I made a bike out of stuff that I had cut up out of old bikes and was using, like, stock from stuff that we would make railings out of, like, nothing super heavy. But, you know, I was just basically just building something to experiment and it was my first track bike that I ever built and um, didn't make the fork or anything like that but just built a frame and so that was my first bike and a friend of mine who worked across the street just wouldn't take no for an answer and wanted to buy it off of me so eventually I decided I would sell it to her and use the money to help continue to build my process in terms of making bikes and effectively what that led to is me throwing out everything that I had already started to use or like new I'm a professional TIG welder and like I feel like that became a mode that I don't actually like in terms of using for my bike building so I went back and dug deeper into brazing I started buying machines and teaching myself how to do machining with waves and mills I built my first bike fixture I built all the sub assembly fixtures and was using that as a process of discovery for like learning how to be a machinist again like doubled down on my work with brazing and so it was like another six years at least of me 
really just roughly experimenting and trying things and seeing what, and then riding them for up to a few years per frame to see if anything broke or to see like if I liked the design or whatever. Like my first bike, I literally just traced the Raleigh that I loved riding and I just built a fixture that would accommodate that exact geometry. I had no idea what the angles were supposed to be or anything else about it. I had to cut a bottom bracket out of another bike because I didn't know that you could go online and buy bottom brackets. Um, <laughs> and that's how, you know, I got my start with frame building. And, and I believe I had the opportunity to talk with Richard Sachs at the Bike Builders Ball in Boston. And of course, he is like a cycling industry legend who's been producing bikes for, I think, 30 years, studied at Whitcomb in the UK and has been, you know, a racer and frame builder and like an industry leader, you know, for decades now. And I was kind of having this conversation with him about time and development versus once you really come out and say, hey, I build bikes. And I was like, you know, I've taken a super long time to get to a point where I feel comfortable even showing this stuff right now. And he was like, you know what, that's a really good thing, because, like, that's a line you only want to cross once. And I, it really stuck with me that he said that. And I appreciate the perspective, because it's like, I don't, I didn't want to come out as the kind of bike builder where somebody would look at my stuff and be like, okay, so why do we care? Who are you? You know, like, oh, great, you made another couple triangles that fit together. Like, I really wanted to get to a point where I had some kind of voice in terms of what I wanted to impress myself, really, I think, before I came out about what I was doing beyond just like my circle of friends and everything. And what he said really stuck with me as like a a mentor line where you'd say like, I only want to start getting known for the stuff that I'm producing once. I don't want people to have to come back and be like, oh, you've really like learned how to do something here, you know? So I held on for quite a while before I started saying that I was building frames. And even right now, I've only made, I think, 19, and that's including a couple of cargo bikes. You know, I mean, that's a really low number, I'd say, considering how long I've been working on getting somewhere with the whole bike building thing. Um, and it's because I really, I tear my entire system apart every single time. And then once it's unshreddable, I'll start keeping it around. You know, like a fixture that starts to really feel like it's working and doing the way I want it to, or like... My brazing is starting to look like something that I can appreciate and not just have to file down all the time. Each one of these things has to undergo this acid test, and then you can start to canonize it. And then even still, you're going to second-guess that constantly because I built it. I didn't just buy it from somebody, and I'm hoping that everything lines up nicely. Like It's on me to like make sure that I did a good job. Which I guess brings us back to like the seat post break, you know, you think you've made every mistake possible until you make the next one. And that's just the course of learning is trial and error and uh, research, trial and error, you know, research, trial and error. And eventually, hopefully you get somewhere, you know. Yeah, I think that's what really resonated with people and the surprise you got when people were like really responding to your honesty with, hey, something went wrong and this is what I learned and this is how I fix it. Totally. I'm a teacher, and luckily I have had, you know, mostly pretty good bosses over the time that I've been teaching. You could have the most kick-butt lesson ever, and you've got one class, and you bring it out for that one class, and for some reason it just falls flat. Right. And if your supervisor comes in that day, if they're a good supervisor, they'll say, so what happened differently this time? That was why those good supervisors I've had helped me to level up as a teacher because you can have a, a great lesson fail, but if you learn why it fails, you can get even better at it and even better at it. So you could have a winning formula in any 
career in any in any type of art or science. You know, you have a winning formula, and it's when that winning formula doesn't work that you make the big jumps, the oh, yeah. big the big learning. I think people really responded to that. I know I did. I mean, that's what really stuck out to me, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, you're so scary." I was like, oh, "Maybe this country is just so hungry for some honesty and transparency." <laughs> I mean, whenever we see it, we're just, it's like watching a movie, you know, it's like, I wish it was like that, you know, people told the truth and, and things were like, then we just tried to fix problems and stuff and we were honest totally. about our shortcomings and we weren't trying to be perfect all the time because that's impossible. Which totally. is, it's more important to be uh, intelligent and thoughtful than it is to try and pretend that you're perfect, you know, so totally. that's, that's what the story is, man. Well, how how did you end up? How'd you fix out the problem? So you got you yeah. get this bike back, and you creep in. Did you ride it all the way back to New York? I did. Yeah, and and I didn't have any ability to do anything besides I like cut a Red Bull can up and use the tin from that to like kind of expand the shim that I had in there to begin with. So I did like kind of like on the road fix as best as I could. But like, you know, no matter what, you're pedaling left to right, what, like a hundred thousand times a day. And every single time you do that, you're shifting your weight left to right just slightly, which forces more and more creaking and more and more, you know, gradual opening up of those hairline fractures. So wherever it started as, it got pretty bad by the time I got back to Brooklyn. And, and so, yeah, I rode it another 1300 miles and like another 20 miles of elevation change, I think, climbing on my way back from Michigan upstate New York is a bear. And so I finally got back to Brooklyn and I knew that it was broken. I knew it was damaged. I knew that I loved the bike way too much to just kind of hang it on the wall. And I was way too invested in it. And I felt like it was invested in me. And it was like, okay, so what are we doing about this? You know, you had your hardships and I carried you through those. I've had my hardships and you pushed us to get there. And I felt like we were too much of a team at that point for me to just not do anything about it. So I'd been looking at it, and the way that the thing had broke just on the side, the fillets were perfect. They held up beautifully. They reinforced the area of the tube that the fillet raising covered, transitioning from top tube to seat tube, and from the seat stays up to the seat tube. And so what I effectively did was just trace a vertical eye shape around both of those, something that I would do if I was working on a bilam or if I was doing a, a bilaminated head tube sleeve or one of the other bikes that I've done seat post clamp sleeves on and just like came up with a nice figured line that I, whatever I could around where it had broken, like cutting off all of the broken stuff. And then just picked a line, I think five inches down from the very top of the clamp down where I was just gonna straight cross cut the seat tube. And so the, a newer way of people managing this age old problem of uh, stuck seat posts, they do these like mountain bikes and stuff, will use a bigger seat tube then we'll fit the seat post into it and then use a reducer collar at the top. So you've only got four something inches of actual contact to the seat post. And so I've been thinking about that. You know, I'm using a 25.4 millimeter, which is a number that makes no sense because what it actually is is one inch in metric. So that's why I had picked that seat tube size is I could also source one inch titanium tubing. And so I have 4130 chromoly tubing in a variety of wall thicknesses in order to build stems and in order to build sleeves for the lugs that I build. And so I was like, well, I have this stock that's a perfect one inch ID. 
I'm going to make a sleeve out of that, and it's also one and an eighth on the outside, so it's got a sixteenth of inch wall. And this is where Imperial and Metric overlap in terms of bike building and stuff like that. So I have this tubing. It's perfect for the outside. It's perfect for the inside. And it equals four times thicker than the original tube that I used. And so I basically just came up with a piece and a very small amount of machining later. I could drop it down into the place where I was cutting out all the rest of the broken stuff, leave it into the original seat tube and have it sit directly on top of that kind of like inner laminates and gave me somewhere to uh, braze it together. So basically what it amounts to is like there was a whole splintered tube at the top where it's supposed to clamp around the seat post. And so what I did was I just cut all of that out as if it was sort of like a cancerous section. And rather than having a thin tube with a shim inside of it to get down to the seat post size, I just picked a tube that had a thick enough wall to do both of those jobs. So it's now the outside diameter of the tube as well as the size that's appropriate to clamp onto the smaller post. And so I slipped that into place and just cleanly detailed the two parts that had originally connected there and then just braised the whole thing back together as if I had meant to do it with more of like a figured detail to it. And so basically what it does is just gives you a, a thicker, stronger, though not apparent, like it's not a lug, it's not like a secondary layer on anything. The layering is just using a thicker tube that does the transition from the outside dimension of the seat tube to the post, which I don't think really helps simplify it all that much, really. But um, kind of, no, it did. Kind of, it did. It's a it did. weird one to describe. Um, so you put so a now, you put a beefier piece of metal in there, but you had to do that. You had to yeah. <laughs> you had to cut out the the old part, and then you had to uh, strip away some of this magical paint job that you had luckily luckily this whole damage happened where the whole frame was black like there was no crossfade there was no 3d honeycomb there was no magenta so the stuff that i can't fix that i would have had to send it back to black magic and probably have them start over all of this damage i was able to fix even with the torch heat and everything happening that i had to do is all within the black area of the bike and so what i got to do is literally take a can of paint that i had used to do a friend of mine's bike with a metallic black and do a good job fading back and like buffing down the metal to clean metal because you can't do this fix without taking all the paint off of it so i was able to do all of that inside the area where the whole bike is painted black and i'm also going to be showing this bike at a, at a local show called wilder shores in greenpoint that a friend of mine invited me into and rather than just showing winged victory which i feel like is sort of a misleading segment of the bikes that I build, I want to show this touring bike and be able to tell that story. And I want to be able to show Winged Victory and show kind of more of a spread of what I do. So I need to fix this thing like fast. I've only got like another, you know, less than 10 days to do this. And I basically re I cleaned everything up, did the brazing job, primed it, buffed it to try to level out the surface of the paint from like what was finished paint back to primer, painted over that with black. And now I'm going to buff it down a little bit more and do a clear coat and hopefully it'll look like nothing ever happened. Except I can tell the story like we're doing right now of like what happened and what I did about it. And the bike is basically for all the rest of the crash testing that had happened on the bike. It's absolutely fantastic. It rides amazingly. Everything else held up great. The one thing that I feel like I could have done a better job designing, I've now had the opportunity to go back and remedy in a way that I feel like will keep that bike running forever, you know? 
so that was that was like really one of the most important things to me is to do frame repairs for people because they've got a bike that they love something went wrong and they just want to keep riding this bike and rather than getting thrown in a landfill and starting over i do anything i can to help fix people's bikes for like next to no money because i want them to keep this thing alive and so to get to do that for myself in this case whereas like none of the rest of the bikes that i've ever built myself have broken in any way meant a lot to me to get to to resurrect this one and, and hopefully get an even better ride out of it now so it's a prototype and now it's it is. tested, improved prototype. And now <laughs> yeah, it's going so. back out into the show world. And upstate and hopefully plenty of other, you know, distance rides that I'll get to do once I put it back together. Yeah. So what is the model of this bike? What is the name of this bike? I don't know, actually, but um, a friend of mine was saying he wanted to buy one so he could rip on it. And I was like, it is pretty ripplicious. And I was thinking, oh, maybe that's the name. Um, I don't have a name for it yet. Right now, it's the touring bike. I am usually one to, like, try to give something a name and give something a, a distinction. But right now, it's resting on a type. It's a touring bike, it's a cross-country bike, and until I maybe have an epiphany moment, I guess it's going to be that way. I'm going to throw a name into the ring. I won't be offended if you don't take it. <laughs> the Dirty Little Secret. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Anything that sounds like Sivius sounds good to me. I'm into that. I also did a lot of collecting of feathers along the way, and I feel like some part of me wants to, like, uh, turkey vulture isn't exactly roll off the tongue kind of quality, but... Um, Paul, bikes have been begging to be called turkey vulture for years, <laughs> so maybe maybe you'll be the guy who finally pulls that trigger on the turkey vulture name. <laughs> they are magnificent yeah. birds that just soar and soar and soar effortlessly. It was the first bird I found as roadkill, too, so it was the first feather I collected when I was in Southern California. I had to climb under a barbed wire fence. He rode with me for 4,000 miles. You'll have to meditate on that a little bit, but I, I think Turkey Vulture, is, it's time has come. <laughs> it's well, dirty little know, but... <laughs> I'm into that, too. <laughs> Alright, so where can people go to see the bike and to see the repaired bike and all your other cool bikes that you make and to also suggest names to you <laughs> they listen yeah. to this episode? Where can they go to find out more? Well, for sure, I think the most popular place to see my work is on Instagram under Porter Cycles. That's where I'm typically posting as much as I can about what I'm up to. I do have a website, portercycles.com. You can check out more work there and order a t-shirt if you feel like supporting and wearing something pretty cool. And otherwise, locally in Brooklyn, I do have this show, Wilder Shores, coming up on the 17th. If you look them up, they're also on Instagram under Wilder Shores BK. That's something that's going on monthly. It's kind of like a design fair. I'm going to be showing them there. And I'm hoping that a show that I was invited to in Strasbourg, France, in uh, late September is going to work out. But if you look on my Instagram, then I'll be posting about those kind of events when they come up. I know Builder's Ball isn't going to be in the fall, but it's going to be in the spring of next year. Are you planning on going back there again? I've had a really good time every time I've been. So, yeah, most likely. We'll see what turn what comes around scheduling-wise, but I, I've always had a really good time, and I encourage people to come out to that one for sure. I, I love Eric's show. He's, he's such a fun venue. 
It's uh, such a great mix of, like, there's so many people who are, like, like, that's where I met Richard Sachs and, like, J.P. Weigel and, like, the folks from Firefly and, like, you know, I've I've met, uh, you know, Brian from uh, Royal H. I've just gotten to meet a super awesome set of East Coast builders, and I feel like compared to the scale of NABs, it's really easy to approach people and, like, actually get to talk to them about their work. So, yeah, I'm a big fan, and I would more than likely be there. So, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the time. Good day, this is Rowan de Bonaire of the Velocipedium here in Lancashire, England. I'm here to remind you always to do your ABC quick check before every ride, no matter how short. So here we go. A is for air. Check those tyres, which is spelt with a Y, by the way. B is for brakes. C is for your chain. And quick is your quick release or your wheel nuts. Just check that those wheels are going to stay where they belong. Thank you, Tom. And here's wishing you all tailwinds and joyful cycling. Toodle pip. And now it's time for the mid-roll thank yous. I so much appreciate people who follow or leave a positive review online. It really helps the show. So VMPV85, thank you very much for following on Podbeam. PBG5FA9BR, the end, that's how I'm going to say it. TG5611, thank you for following online. Big thanks to Rich Shannon for leaving a great review on iTunes. That really helps the show, and I appreciate it. Also like to thank Aaron from Transresistor Radio and Uncle the Podcast for keeping me in the loop. We've done a few crossovers already and hope to do more in the future. Thanks again to Rowan at the Velocipedium for ABC Quick Check. Thanks to all the folks interacting on Facebook and Instagram. And once again, a big thanks to everybody in the Bike Karma Sticker Army. If you want some stickers to share with your friends, all you got to do is message me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com or DM me on any of the social media. And helping out with those stickers and helping to support the show is Fred Thomas with The Frame and Wheel. The Frame and Wheel provides eBay selling services to cyclists, bike shops, bike companies, bike racing teams, and cycling-related nonprofit organizations throughout New England. They can save you time, space, and cash. You've heard about them previously on the show, but this time I took my own advice. I've been gathering up some smalls that, you know, I just haven't had the time to get around to listing myself. And so I sent them off to Fred at the Frame and Wheel. Now that was only a couple days ago and already he sent me an inventory and he's going to be updating me soon with how they list. I was kind of surprised at how relieved I was to get these parts out of the house. You know, I had a bunch of stems that were like new takeoffs and some tires that I never used and some other stuff. They've just been sitting around and picking on my brain. It's like, you should sell those. You should get some money for them. And I've been waiting and procrastinating because I've got other stuff to do. I finally just put them all into a box and sent them up to Fred at the Frame and Wheel. 
Now, if you've actually gone up to the framing wheel, which I hope you do, you'll see that Fred is a master of photography. So all that time that you'd waste trying to get a good picture of your item from every different angle, Fred, he's like a Jedi of photography. He can make a stem look like a superstar. He can make a rock shock look like a rock star. And he can make pedals look perfect. He also is really smart about bike stuff. To be honest, I sent him a part that I got from a swap meet that I didn't even know what it was. It looks brand new, but I had no idea. And he sent me back exactly what it was on the inventory. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. And the great part about it all is that you're gonna feel good because not only are you gonna get time, space, and cash, but you're also gonna get these parts into the hands of somebody who's actually gonna use them. So you're helping the planet too. If you look around your garage and you're like, hey Tom, I don't have a lot of stuff to sell. Well, you can just check out a store for stuff to buy. He's got some great deals on a lot of used gear, accessories, and bicycles. He works with all kinds of stuff, from road bikes to mountain bikes to touring bikes to bespoke bikes, all styles from vintage to cutting edge. If it's bicycle, the frame and wheel. So go check him out at the frame and wheel on Instagram, Facebook, or any other social media. Please give him a thank or a follow while you're there for helping to support the show. There's a famous song from the 80s that goes something like, Walking in LA, nobody walks in LA. But there's plenty of people who walk in LA, and there's lots of people who ride bikes. You might remember Chris Brown moving a major appliance using his cargo bike a few episodes back. But I recently talked to a band in LA that gigs by bike. Yeah, they carry all their stuff with them on bicycles and sometimes a skateboard or two. So in a world where it's assumed that every band has a van behind them, let's hear the story of Vignus Rooftop Revival and their gigging by bike. P.S. All the music in this particular segment is provided courtesy of Vignus Rooftop Revival. Thanks, guys. One of the things that's really great about cycling to shows is that the sights and sounds you encounter along the way kind of give you inspiration for your music. Oftentimes, especially if it's a kind of some quieter streets, I'll get a, an idea in my head and kind of work it around, hum it a little bit, and then if I have my guitar with me, I'll stop and try to record it in a park or somewhere along the road, or sometimes I'll just record a quick voice memo while I'm riding and not even stop. I've written a lot of songs for the for the band that way. And it's it's really nice just kind of the slower pace you can take in the, the overall feel of a neighborhood and you kind of have more time to think and experience your surroundings. You're not just sealed in a metal and plastic pod cut off from everything it's uh i think it's really helped us as a band to be more integrated into our neighborhood it's sort of kept the radius of where we play a lot smaller and so we're you know we're kind of always popping in to, to talk to the staff or at the venues where we play or you know we're seeing our friends as we ride by and it's uh, it's really cool it's more conducive to a, a community feel Thank you. 
Hi, my name is Eric Myron. My band, The Vignus Rooftop Revival, is based in downtown Los Angeles. So you guys gig by bike? Yes. So what is that like? It's interesting. In LA, there aren't a lot of people who do that. I think in uh, cities that are either a bit smaller or a bit more bike friendly, it's more common. I know there are a lot of bands that do that. Up in the San Francisco area, and jazz bands have been doing that in New Orleans since the late 1800s. They're really old black and white pictures and you know also anecdotes of musicians with an upright bass strapped to the backs of their bicycles but in LA it's I'm not aware of many musicians using bicycles as a means of transportation even in the you know in the era when LA was a bit more compact and bicycle friendly but you know, now I think it's probably safe to say that we're the, the busiest bicycle bands in town, maybe maybe even by default. The band got its start, some neighbors jamming in the on the roof of our little loft building downtown. We have a garden up there. And eventually we became a band. We'd have these little dinner parties and soirees late into the night and the instruments would come out. Yeah, after a while we settled on the repertoire of Django Reinhardt, kind of old Prohibition era jazz, French jazz, many other eclectic influences, and we started playing shows out and about. You know, the first shows were just a few blocks away at little bars and restaurants. You know, we sort of concentrated on a you know, maybe 10-mile radius from our place in downtown. And we play probably 200 or so shows a year in that area, and the, you know, the founding members are all, all getting there by bicycle or sometimes skateboards. We have a bassist who skates with his bass. He's upright bass, he puts a little set of wheels on the back of the bass and kind of coasts with it. And for longer trips, he has a little makeshift bike trailer. Driving around, especially downtown Los Angeles, is such a hassle that in most cases it's actually faster to bike and you don't have to worry about getting a parking ticket or trying to, to pay to park in the garage or any of that. So it, it really happened organically. It has a lot of advantages. It really keeps your overhead low. You're not having to, to pay for gas and parking all the time. It allows you to connect with the neighborhoods you're playing in a lot more. Almost every time on the way to a gig, I'll run into somebody in the neighborhood that I know, either another musician going to another venue or somebody who lives around there, or someone who's just there for the day. And that's something that's really nice that you don't get in a car. So it's really, it's allowed us to be woven into the fabric of our neighborhood in a way that I don't think would be possible if we were doing everything by car. The, this band, it started with four and grown to kind of a, an amorphous blob of about 20 to 30 players that just kind of rotate 
true depending on who's in town and who's available. And some of our guest players do drive to the gigs. Sometimes they, you know, some of them live live far away or have other sessions or just don't feel comfortable cycling. But the the founders of the band are all pretty committed to taking bicycles. I would say 95 to 99 percent of our shows we do do by bicycle. I don't think uh, we we haven't we haven't talked any harp players into into biking with their instruments yet. We'll see. And I, I do solo things on top of that, and I almost always take the bicycle and I've kind of rigged up a, a trailer if I have a lot of gear and I have some kind of milk crate bike rack type setups for, for smaller things and I usually carry the carry my guitar on my back. What kind of bike do you have? It's an old uh, Shogun touring frame. I think it's from the maybe the mid 80s. It was a project bike at the bicycle kitchen. I think I built it originally in 2012 and did a little tour on it and it's it's kind of the perfect bike for this because it's pretty, a pretty sturdy frame, a really nice frame, but it's also kind of old and I've done most of the work on it myself. So I'm a guitar player, not a bike mechanic. So it's not the coolest looking bike. It's a little bit clunky and that actually, I think as an advantage, it keeps it from, from getting stolen, knock on wood. It's actually a really, you know, really nice functional bike. It's due for a tune-up. I, I put a guitar amplifier on the rear rack, and if I hit a bump too hard, I'll end up with a with a broken spoke. And a few months ago, I switched to a the solid axle. I had these quick-release axles, and they kept breaking. And it gets a lot of. I'm on on it almost every day, you know, pulling a trailer or having an amp in the back. So it gets, it's taken a lot of abuse, and it's usually the rear the rear wheel that ends up having problems. Every few months, I tend to have to to go in and do a lot of work on it and replace it. And I, I built it at the Bicycle Kitchen, which is a, a do-it-yourself bicycle shop and co-op space over in East Hollywood, and they're they're amazing. They've kind of been a been a part of the band in a way since the beginning. We, you know, they helped us fix up our bikes and kind of come up with ideas for how we can transport our equipment better. And we played for some of their events, and they're they're great people. And and I've uh, I, I head over there whenever I I need to do some work, and it's kind of all. My bicycle is a little bit of a Frankenstein monster with a kind of all, whatever used parts they have. And I have this rack that I think was originally from an, an old electric bicycle, real sturdy rear rack and kind of all, all sorts of random things on it. But uh, it served me well. challenge is you have to leave a little bit more time in case there's some sort of a problem with your ride. You know, trying to kind of book and promote and prepare. Sometimes bicycle maintenance gets put on the back burner and that can come back to haunt you. Actually, our 
probably the kind of the most high profile show we ever did was for a performance series downtown, kind of like this concert in the park. Uh, it happened to be the hottest day of the year, and it was uh, it was 108 degrees, and I was riding up the, the First Street Hill in downtown Los Angeles to get to the venue. My front tires exploded from the, the heat. Uh, I think it caused the pressure to to be too much. And then at the same time, like shortly after my chain broke, so my bicycle was was completely done and I had to push it up the hill. We made it and we had a a good show. But, and I've I've had weird, I had had the chain break a couple of times. I've had some things where I got behind on kind of checking the, the derailleur and adjusting the limit screws and then I've had several derailleur failures uh pretty catastrophic and kind of took out my rear rear wheel which the silver lining was it made a really cool sound when I was pushing the bike home and so I I recorded it and gave it to my my friend Amber who's a great uh, great producer she she plays clarinet with us but she's a great producer kind of in the neo soul genre but she uh she sampled all these crazy bicycle sounds and made made a beat out of it which was pretty cool so that that one had us over a lining one example of a tune that was sort of inspired from cycling is this song we just put out called uh, Fire Jugglers and Bicycle Mechanics and our friends at the Bicycle Kitchen which is the do-it-yourself bike co-op over in East Hollywood they invited us to come play at one of their parties and we played a a set and they had some other friends who were kind of circus performers and they were doing this whole juggling routine and you know eventually escalated to two people juggling these flaming torches back and forth in the, the patio surrounded by bicycles while we were playing and just sort of the that scene I started thinking about jugglers and as I was riding home got this little idea in my head and you know recorded it real quick and eventually fleshed it out and sort of tried to make it sound like circus music and that's that's a a thing that I think is is much easier to do on a bicycle than in a car is you'll be riding and you'll start thinking of something that happened earlier in the day or maybe some people that you want to collaborate with and you you think oh you know I should try and come up with some music and sooner or later you you end up with an idea and is somehow it's easier to come up with ideas while I'm on a bicycle I don't know if that's true for other musicians or if that's just kind of a, a quirk that I have
it's it's been great and we have another tune that we just put out called knocking over scooters which is sort of I won't name any names, but some people in town are are not fans of the the rental scooters, and they'll they'll ride by and and kick them over. song sort of silly silly song of like a imagining like a time trial if people were trying to kick over as many as they could if it were like a contest or something and so there's just a lot of things in the neighborhood that i see that just things related to the to cycling that that come out in the in the music and we're going to start recording more soon and I, I hope to work in some actual bicycle sounds into the recording some like percussion from the spokes uh we actually did a recording session with a synthesizer kind of music software company called output you know they, their headquarters is right next to la state historic park and we were playing for a, a big bicycle conference called bike bike a couple years ago and we we got the people from output involved Part of the project was we actually went into the studio and recorded a bunch of sounds with bicycles. Some of it was drumming on the spokes, and we actually, you can take a bow, like from a violin, It's a bigger bow is better, like a, from a cello or a bass, and you can bow the spokes, and it it's kind of has this real clear tone, kind of like a violin sound, and you can you know use a, a spoke wrench to tune or detune the spokes and so that was really cool there are a lot of different ways where music and cycling kind of intersect and so it's it's been really great having that be such an integral part of who we are as a band and, and what we do i guess that's one thing that we would really love is to connect more with the cycling community both in la and, and internationally we done a lot of cool events at uh, bicycle spaces around town and we would love to get out see the country a bit more and maybe play for some spaces in your your neck of the woods if we can get out there we're looking at how to how to do even more longer tours cycling you know we mostly play within a five ten mile radius of where we live but it'd be great to you know maybe take the the amtrak up to seattle and ride down play a show every you know 30 to 50 miles or something but that's sort of where we're that's where we're at right now we're hoping to maybe next summer to put together a big tour so if anybody has a town where they'd like to to see us play, they can get in touch with us. Best way is probably to our website is just rooftoprevival.com, and you can also find us on Instagram. Our handle is just rooftoprevival. Also, if you want to hear our music, you can find us on Spotify, The Vignes Rooftop Revival. Uh, it's V-I-G-N-E-S. And we're also on YouTube, SoundCloud, pretty much everything. And if you want to uh, have a bicycle band play in your town or host a house concert or something, you get in touch and hopefully we can, uh, we can make it happen.
so you can hear the highway in the background. I am snow biking and this is so much better for me than being on a stationary trainer. I've got full sun out here even though I'm bundled up quite tight. Got my fat bike. I'm slipping and sliding a little bit in some snow ruts, but I'm making it through some dirt roads. I don't know when they call it gravel grinding gets wet. With snow, do you call it an ice cone ride? I don't know, but we should come up with something clever for that. So it's a possibility. You could, instead of investing in gym membership or getting yourself a trainer, you could get yourself a snow bike. Depending on who you talk to, fat bikes probably climaxed around 2015-2016, but they're still very popular, especially in areas that get a lot of snow. Most commonly, they have between 4-inch and 5-inch tires. They can run studded or unstudded for the snow and ice, but you can even use them as your normal mountain bike during the rest of the year. And if you do use them during the rest of the year, you'll find that they're very forgiving and fun. I do not regret buying my snow bike, and I do not regret going outside today. If you'd like to hear more about fat bikes on my first time riding one, check out episode 11. Well, that brings us to the end of another Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. Thanks a lot for coming along for the ride. I'd like to thank Rowan from The Velocipedian, Porter Cycles, and Rooftop Revival. As always, I'd like to thank Kelly Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can check them out at Mobjack or at KellerGlass.com. I'd like to thank Fred Thomas at The Frame and Wheel and AD Bikes, and to all the people who've downloaded the show. Also, thanks to all the people waiting patiently with their stories in the pipeline. Thanks a lot for being patient. I hope you've enjoyed this last year of stories, and our next episode is going to be at the beginning of February. Give me a little bit of breathing room to get the episodes together. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for stories, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. And if you think you have a product that might fit with the show, go ahead and email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Apart from the music in the episode, the Bike Karma podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including trademarks, copyrights, etc., are asserted and reserved. I hope you have a great holiday season and a happy new year, no matter where you are in the world. If you get a chance to leave a positive review wherever you listen, that would be greatly appreciated. What's up? Taryn, what are you doing back? Nothing. That's all I'm getting from Taryn for the new year. I got a what's up. <laughs> all right. So Taryn doesn't want to say anything other than what's up to everybody. You remember, he was the kid who would do the ABC quit check with me until he became a teenager. <laughs> Fun times. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Taryn? A stands for air. Oh, my God. He's doing it. B stands for break. Oh, my God. C, C stands, stands for, for chain. C stands for chain. Chain line. Yes. And... And then quick is quick releases. Quick release and check. A quick overall check of your bike. Wow. Do that. You should do that. Okay. Well, happy holidays, Aaron. <laughs> Till next time. Bye. Till next time. Keep it wheel. Keep
keep it real. There's times like these that I feel like I'm